This is Ideas Worth Exploring by Mark McDonald. Viruses are so small that they're impossible to see with an ordinary microscope. It's not just that we need bigger lenses, it's that the physics of how light interacts with matter prevents us from seeing things that small. It wasn't until the electron microscope was invented that we understood what viruses actually looked like, but we knew about them long before that. Remember our friend Louis Pasteur, the bacteria guy from the previous episode? He was also a virus guy, but he didn't know it at the time. Louis Pasteur is known as the father of bacteriology, the study of bacteria. He developed vaccines for chicken cholera and for anthrax in sheep, goats, and cows, which were both caused by bacteria. But after making vaccines for these two bacterial diseases, Mr. Pasteur shifted his attention on to his first human vaccine, a vaccine for rabies. And he did it. He developed a vaccine for rabies and used it to successfully treat a nine-year-old boy, becoming an international hero in the process. But despite all this, he was never able to isolate the germ that causes rabies. And the reason was this. Rabies is caused by a virus, not a bacteria. There was no way to see viruses using the technology of the time. They were way too small. A few years later, more progress was made on studying viruses, this time in plants. While studying a disease that caused tobacco leaves to have spots that look like a mosaic, some people were able to show that the disease was caused by something smaller than any bacteria. These people were named Ivanovsky and Bejernik, if you care about names, and they both discovered pretty much the same thing, but independent of each other. They used a filter with pores too small for even a bacteria to fit through. After filtering out all the bacteria, they were left with a nasty fluid that would still cause the disease. Bejernik called the fluid virus, which was a Latin word meaning slimy liquid or poison. He thought that the disease was caused by the fluid, but it was later shown that viruses are in, are in fact little creatures living in the fluid. But living isn't really the right word, because according to many scientists, viruses aren't actually alive. Wait, what do you mean they're not alive? Are they dead then? Are viruses zombies? Nope. Viruses are kind of like rocks, in that they're neither alive nor dead. Which leads to a very questiony question. What is life, really? Why is a tree alive but a rock isn't? And that's not a completely rhetorical question. Biologists love to discuss this. It's actually still debated whether viruses should be considered alive or not. One view is that viruses are so simple that they're deemed unworthy of being called alive or dead. They're just a group of molecules arranged in a certain way that happens to be able to infect things. But before I get into this, I'm going to explain what a virus is. Then I'm going to go over the reasons that many scientists say that a virus is not alive. Then I'm going to talk about what happens to your body when you get infected. Spoiler alert, you get sick. And if you think having a runny nose is fun, well, it's not. If you've ever seen a picture of a virus, it probably looked a little like either a freaky alien spider or a puffball covered in spikes. They can also look like a cylinder or like one of those 20-sided dice you use to play Dungeons and Dragons. A virus is just a little tiny capsule of protein that houses some genetic material inside, either DNA or its cousin RNA. What's DNA? You're in luck. I have a whole episode about that. Go and listen to it. What's RNA? RNA is the cousin of DNA. It's a different molecule, but it can do some of the same things, like hold the instructions to make proteins. What's a protein? A protein is a horse. 
And by that, I mean one person on the internet described proteins as the workhorse of the cell. A protein is a very versatile type of molecule, and your body has about 20,000 different proteins in it that do all sorts of different jobs, like provide structure, move things around, make chemical reactions happen, send signals around the body, and do anything else you'd expect a horse to do. But a virus is very simple. It only has about a dozen proteins. A dozen proteins and some genetic material, that's it. And because they're so simple, viruses can get very, very small. Viruses range from small and simple to very small and very simple. There is one type of virus that has only four genes. Four. What that means is that it has RNA that codes for only four proteins. These proteins do things like hold the virus together and stick to and infect your body's cells. So this is kind of like building a fully functioning robot using only four different types of Legos. It's very impressive that it actually works. Actually, most of the time, viruses don't work. They just float around doing nothing. Usually, they can't even move on their own. But when chance, or dare I say it, destiny, places them in contact with a living cell, then the fireworks start. When a virus meets a cell it's compatible with, it attaches to the cell membrane using special proteins on its surface. Then it either fuses with the cell, the two become one, very zen, or the cell kind of eats the virus through a process called endocytosis. Ask your nearest biology teacher about it because I'm moving on. Either way, the virus's genetic material gets inside the cell where it can wreak all sorts of havoc. A cell is like a factory that produces proteins. These proteins are used to let the cell grow and do its job as part of the body. The instructions for these proteins are written in your DNA and then copied down and carried to the protein machines by DNA's cousin, RNA. When a virus infects one of your cells, it sends in its own RNA that hijacks the machinery that your cells use to make proteins, and tricks it into making virus proteins instead. Usually one of those proteins also replicates the virus's RNA. Then all the extra RNA and the virus proteins assemble into a hundred new copies of the virus who explode from the cell and go off to infect whatever other poor cell they happen to come across. Basically, a virus is an opportunistic, unemployed robot. It accomplishes nothing until it finds a host cell to swindle, then it tricks its way inside and turns the cell into a factory to make more opportunistic, unemployed robots, then kills the cell on its way out. What a jerk! Another way of saying all this is that a virus is a type of obligate parasite meaning that if it doesn't find a host, then it will die out, having lived a sad and purposeless existence. If it finds a host cell, then it gets to reproduce and go on to spread the joy to other nearby cells. But otherwise, it just floats around doing nothing until it gets destroyed, either by sunlight or by drying out or getting its membrane destroyed by soap or other chemicals. Or, there are some microscopic organisms called protists that eat viruses, so that's another way it could get destroyed. The problem is that a virus can survive for a long time before any of these things happen. A flu virus can survive in the air for several hours. A cold virus can survive on indoor surfaces for days. And some viruses, such as hepatitis A, can survive for weeks if the conditions are favorable. There was also a story in the paper a few years ago about a 30,000-year-old virus that was dug out of the Siberian permafrost that became infectious again after being thawed out. Which sounds like a great plot for a science fiction movie about the dangers of climate change. 
Notice that I said the virus became infectious again, not that it came back to life. That's because many scientists don't think viruses should actually be considered alive. To understand this argument, let's look at some characteristics that all living things share. Living things generally have some traits in common, and I'm going to mention three of them. One of the most important traits is that living things can reproduce. Baby bunnies come from adult bunnies having children. Baby bacteria come from adult bacteria splitting in two. But where do baby viruses come from? They come from adult viruses invading the cells of another organism and stealing their protein-making machinery. A virus can't reproduce by itself. It has to infect another organism to reproduce. This puts viruses in a weird place. Unlike a rock, a virus can reproduce and make more copies of itself. But unlike a rabbit or a bacteria, a virus doesn't have the tools to replicate itself without stealing from a larger organism. However, this alone is not enough to disqualify viruses from being alive. There are many types of fleas and worms that are obligate parasites, meaning they can't reproduce without relying on another organism. So we'll have to keep thinking before we make a final decision. Another characteristic of living things is that they use energy. In animals and plants, energy comes from a special structure in the cell that is often called the powerhouse of the cell. Yes, I'm talking about mitochondria. Mitochondria use chemical reactions to break down food molecules and store their energy in a molecule called ATP. Bacteria don't have mitochondria, but they use chemical reactions on their cell membrane to create ATP because ATP is how they store energy to move and grow. A Native American of the Lakota tribe was all out of energy. Why? Because he was up all night building ATP. <laughs> all of this is to say that viruses can't make their own ATP. They still have to steal it from a host. So that means they're not alive then? Wait, here's the rub. There are also some bacteria that are obligate parasites that don't make their own energy. They have to steal it from a host cell too. Since those bacteria are still considered alive, this alone can't be the deciding factor. The last characteristic of living things I want to talk about is very related to the previous two. Living things respond to their environment, they grow and they move. Since a virus can't produce its own energy until it happens to find a host, it just floats around doing nothing. In my mind, being alive means moving and changing, and until they're inside a cell, a virus can't do that. So for me, this one's the kicker that makes me think a virus is not alive. But a virus is still more alive than a rock, because when it infects a cell, it can reproduce itself. I guess it's in a weird place of half-life, like a zombie or a vampire. I almost feel sorry for them, but not really. So, moving on. Let's talk about why a virus makes you feel sick. Yes, it is killing your body one cell at a time, but why does that turn into a headache and a runny nose? I will do my best to answer that, but know that your body is the most complicated machine that exists on the planet Earth. So many of the things I'm about to say are only best guesses. We don't actually know exactly how an infection progresses, or what exactly causes some of the symptoms. But medical scientists have been studying it for a long time, and even if they don't know everything yet, they certainly know more than you do. Unless you have a hobby of reading medical textbooks in your free time, then you may feel free to correct anything that I say. Also, the following description is mostly the same for a virus or bacteria, so even though I say the word virus, it can usually just as easily apply to a bacteria. For a virus to infect you, it has to get past your skin. 
In the previous episode, I talked a little bit about why skin is so good at protecting your body. But one of the reasons is that the outer layers of skin is so dead that it no longer has the machinery for a virus to hijack. So a virus needs to get past the skin to be able to reproduce and cause a problem. An infection can happen through a cut in your body or through an existing hole in your body, such as your eyes or mouth. If it happens through a cut, the area around the cut might get inflamed, meaning blood gathers in the tissues around it to help bring more infection-fighting cells into the battle. But there's no guarantee the infection will stick around the cut. It could travel through the bloodstream to the rest of your body. If instead of a cut you eat something infected with the wrong bacteria or virus, they can infect the lining of your intestines, which is one thing that could give you a stomachache, diarrhea, and vomiting. Stomachache because your stomach has nerves in it that get irritated when your stomach lining gets infected. Vomiting because your body has a vomit reflex when stomach nerves get too irritated. And diarrhea because normally your intestines absorb water from your poop, but they're not as good at doing that when they're fighting a war for their survival against an invading force. But that's not really what I want to talk about, because the real interesting diseases are respiratory illnesses, the kind that infect your lungs and throat. This kind of disease usually gets into your body through your mouth, nose, or eyes. I think it's very interesting that a disease that infects your lungs can get in through your eyes. They're not even connected, are they? Yes, yes they are. From your eyes, a virus or bacteria can travel through your tear ducts to your nasal cavity and infect your nose and throat, then move on to your lungs. Neat. Also, by the way, there's a rumor that your eyes have their own immune system that's separate from the rest of your body. That's not true, but they do have what's called immune privilege, meaning that your immune system is suppressed in your eyes. That's because if your eyes swell up, you could go blind, and that would be bad. So your eyes have special adaptations that force your immune system to be gentler. Doesn't this just make it easier for your eyes to get infected? Well, yes. They have plenty of adaptations to make it work, but a gentler immune response does make it slower to fight off an infection in your eyes than in most other places in your body. Back to symptoms. When you get an infection that comes in through your eyes, nose, or mouth, it often causes symptoms such as a headache, sore throat, runny nose, and fever. These symptoms aren't caused by the virus itself, but by your body trying to fight it off before it grows out of control. The body heats up because many microbes can't survive high temperatures very well. This is a fever. When microbes damage tissues in your body, your body makes the blood vessels nearby widen so infection-fighting cells can get there faster. This response is called inflammation. Inflammation in your throat is what gives you a sore throat. Your body also creates more mucus to trap bacteria and viruses in your nose and throat, then expel them either when you blow your nose or when you swallow the mucus and let your stomach acids deal with it. This causes a stuffy or runny nose. When mucus blocks your airways or when receptors in your nose and throat get irritated or inflamed, it can cause coughing and sneezing. Also, what do you call a locomotive with a cold? A choo-choo train. If you're coughing up mucus, then it's a good cough, because it helps expel the germs trapped in the mucus from your body. But a dry cough does not help your body at all, and it can hurt you more than it helps. Dry cough, bad. Doctor, it seems like your cough is getting better. Patient, yes, I spent all night practicing. Headaches can be caused by inflammation in the head, especially if it happens near your nerves. Or, 
If your nasal cavities swell up, as they do when you get sick, this can also cause pressure that gives you a headache. Sometimes your digestive system might be upset by flu medications or mucus in your stomach, which is why having a respiratory infection can give you a stomach ache and even make you throw up. Or it could be a secondary infection from the virus or bacteria spreading to the digestive system. It's not always clear which of these happens, but either way, it doesn't feel good. So once you're sick, what can you do about it? Well, if it's a bacterial infection, we have medicines called antibiotics that kill bacteria. But if it's a viral infection, you're kind of out of luck. Antibiotics don't work on viruses. Before you get infected by a virus, you can get a vaccine for it that teaches your immune system what to look out for and prevent you from getting sick. But after you get sick, all you can do is treat the symptoms and wait for your body to fight off the infection by itself. But don't worry, your body is remarkably good at fighting off infections. I don't have time to explain the body's entire immune system, and I also don't really understand it yet, but I want to focus on one aspect of it. Antibodies. Antibodies are proteins in your bloodstream that lock onto invaders, such as viruses, and mark them for death. A specific antibody can only lock onto a specific type of foreign substance. So when you get infected by a new virus, you usually don't have any antibodies for it. But once your body learns about it and starts making antibodies for it, and these, anti these antibodies tend to stick around. So the next time the virus invades, your body already has the antibodies for it. That's why you don't usually get sick multiple times from the same disease. Unless the markers on the outside of the virus mutate, then it can become a new variant of the disease that you don't have antibodies for. But anyway... Antibodies identify the invaders and latch onto them. These tagged cells are then dealt with by your body's other disease-fighting artillery systems, one of which has the intimidating name of killer T cells. You don't mess with the killer T. So these, along with a bunch of other cells and mechanisms, let your body defend itself from the invaders and eventually become not sick. Yay! Why don't ants get sick? Because of all the antibodies. In summary, viruses are very, very small, opportunistic, unemployed robots that just float around until they meet a compatible host cell. Then they trick their way inside and steal the cell's protein-making machinery and use it to make new viruses, then burst out of it like a Christmas cracker, off to infect new cells. When you get an infection, the infected areas swell up to bring disease-fighting agents, like antibodies and, my favorites, the killer T-cells, closer to the action. This inflammation, and also increased mucus production, can irritate receptors in your nose and throat and make you violently expel snot and spit to clear your airways. And that's why a virus makes you sneeze. My girlfriend asked me why I always have to sneeze so loudly. I told her, it's not that I have to, I choose to. Next time we're going to talk about the long-awaited explanation of light and why it's so shiny. Peace. This has been Ideas Worth Exploring by Mark McDonald.